doesn't it? Um, I've been thinking about Chris and Desiree's situation with the health insurance, which they still haven't resolved yet. Uh, I did get some valuable counsel from someone else last night. I'm going to pass on to them. But uh, that's certainly a mess when, you know, your health insurance changes and you can't cover your family members for something that they have. And uh, life's just not clean and neat, but sometimes we forget to thank God for what we do have. And so that's something I hope we can all do. Well, I thought I would take some advice from my dad. Uh, at the time my dad said this, I wasn't a preacher yet, but he often uh, did some uh, speaking as a layman in different uh, Lutheran churches. And uh, he said, when you speak to people, just focus on what the Lord wants to do with you. At least that way, one person gets something out of the sermon. Now, I must confess, I have a difficulty with holiday sermons. I like to just get in the book of the Bible and preach verse by verse because then, I, A, I don't have to think about what I'm going to teach next, and B, I think that's one of the surest ways to make sure that you taught people the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so I tend to, I tend to like preaching from that, but uh, I thought, no, it's, it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. You know, the right thing to do here is preach a Thanksgiving sermon uh, so I'm going to let you all take a holiday today, and you can sit back and relax, and you don't have to take notes or anything. I'm just going to preach about my problem. That way, I'm going to get something out of the sermon, and the rest of you uh, can just enjoy the fact you were here. And uh, that way, I, like I said, at least I know one person will get something out of the sermon. But I'm going to make this a two-parter, uh, and we're just going to be part one of Thanksgiving, which is kind of an odd title, The Problem with Complaining. Um, you know, a little bit of a departure. I, I started this week with two different passages, one uh, in Second Corinthians I was going to preach from, and then this other passage we'll get to here in a moment. And uh, I, again, it's just a struggle for me to do this sort of anything, but sometimes it's appropriate to narrow things down and maybe focus on a topic kind of like I've done on marriage recently. Uh, but yesterday the pastor told me something interesting. It was about Charles Haddon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, who was pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for a number of years and grew that church to a phenomenal church under his ministry. And, of course, one of the great secrets to his ministry is there was a group that met every uh, week in the basement of the church to pray. And I really think that's the strength of a church. You know, when you rely on what a, a pastor you can do, you can only get whatever his eloquence is capable of. But when you rely on prayer, you get what God can do. And so prayer is a far more effective way of building a church than, than preaching or singing or, or entertainment or anything else that we might uh, uh, attempt. But I did not know this about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and I, I've, I thought about now all the sermons I have seen in Spurgeon's writings that I've looked at, and I've got a three-volume set of Spurgeon at home in my library, and typically, they all start with just one verse. Uh, he didn't preach through books of the Bible, and evidently he would find one verse, and he would hone in on a truth in that verse for that sermon. Now, he might quote some other scriptures along the way, and I, I, so I thought, well, I'll take some inspiration out of that. After all, how many slides can you get out of one verse? We all want to get to lunch soon. I hesitate to tell you how many slides I got out of one verse. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to go there. But it's, it's kind of odd because the verse is going to focus on one of the problems that hinders our ability to give thanks to the Lord. And is, it's complaining. And is it really a problem? We're going to read one verse, Numbers 11.1. 1. 
And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Now that's putting it very politely. Basically, God was so angered by these people's complaining that some people died. That's what it means when it says he burned among them and it destroyed the outer parts of the camp. Uh, This is a big deal. So God takes complaining, and we might find some other words in the thesaurus for complaining like whining and grumbling and murmuring, which is the murmuring is the word the King James Version uses. Uh, But evidently this is a problem for God. So we want to zero in on this and, and just ask ourselves how often we click this button, the complaints button. And does it really help for us to do that? And so as we zero in, let, I want to read you an A.W. Tozer quote. He's one of my favorite authors, especially on his book on worship. But he had this to say, Among those sins most exquisitely fitted to injure the soul and destroy the testimony, few can equal the sin of complaining. Now, isn't it interesting that A.W. Tozer calls it a sin? And I, I agree with him. I think uh, we, we can... We can easily know that it's a sin because God tells us explicitly not to do it. And when people do it, they're judged for it in Scripture. So it's a sin, and we, we try to make it spiritual, and, and, uh, uh, but it's, it's not. God's not happy with it. So let me give you the good news first. The good news is that God loves us enough that he does listen to our complaints. When Joshua and the children of Israel were defeated at the battle of Ai in Joshua chapter 7, afterwards Joshua comes and he, he really pours out a complaint before the Lord because Joshua hasn't recognized yet that he's the problem. They went to battle in Ai without praying. Okay, They didn't pray. They just thought, oh, we can handle this ourselves. Well, look, Ai is small and we're big. And boy, in the minute you start thinking you're bigger than somebody else, you probably are at a disadvantage right there. You need to depend on God. And uh, then they, they went against battle, and of course, Ai routed the men of Israel and chased them down and killed many of them. And uh, Joshua didn't take time to pray. He didn't seek the Lord's will. He didn't seek the Lord's plan. He just went at it, assuming that it could be accomplished. That was one of the, you know, the, one of the things that I think Uh, is a great testimony to the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture is that it makes no attempts whatsoever to cover up the fallacies and the shortcomings of the heroes in Scripture. In fact, is there are only two people in all of Scripture about whom nothing bad is ever said, and that's Enoch and Daniel. We don't ever hear anything bad about either of those two characters, but every other person we see their shortcomings. But let me read you some scriptures in the sake of balance. He says, I, uh, Psalm 142, verse 2, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. I will, by the way, if you ever get in a Bible trivia question and somebody asks you who the shortest man in the Bible was, please don't say Zacchaeus. Everybody says Zacchaeus because he had to climb up in the sycamore tree so that he could see the Lord. Uh, and some, some more clever people than that will say it was Bildad the shoe height because you're only as high as a shoe. You've got to be short. Personally, I think it's the guy that stands on his watch. If you can stand on your watch, you've got to be short. 
But all humor aside, listen, listen to this verse. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer him when I am reproved. And so basically Habakkuk pours out a complaint to the Lord about his situation in Judah and he says, I'm, I'm going to sit here and, and I'm, I'm going to see what I'm going to answer when he reproves me. He kind of sensed the reproof was coming. But, you know, a good earthly father listens to the needs, the emotions, and yes, the complaints of their children. We need to hear out those needs and we need to show them that we listen to those needs and we need to show them that, that we sympathize with those needs. You know, we have a a daughter with an autoimmune disease, and a lot of our conversation when we're together centers around how she's feeling and the challenges she's having and what the next medical test is and whether or not she can needs a surgery and whether or not that'll happen between now and the end of the year. And there's a lot of that conversation going on. And so it's, it's draining because as parent, you want to hear good, positive exciting things for your children, share their joys in life. But part of being a parent, you listen to their pains too. You listen to their struggles too. And and, uh, that's what God does. When we have struggles and we have problems and we have emotions, I'm so grateful that he loves us and will listen to us when we do have a complaint. The bad news is that God does hate it when we whine and complain And leave him out of our minds. And that's the crucial difference. The thing is when we whine and complain and gripe and murmur. But we don't even include God in our frame of reference. That's when complaining turns ugly to God. Now if we're bringing our problems to him. He's good with that. But when we're just whining, griping and complaining. And we're leaving God out of our frame of reference. He he hates it. So. Uh, that's, that's what we have to do. And, and why does that bother God? Because our complaining and whining does not bring God glory. And as uh, Brother Stephen put out the first question, the very first question of 109 questions in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Well, it's to know God and to enjoy him forever. It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, and so that's what we, what we should be doing. That's why we're on earth. And the, the Westminster Catechism didn't invent that, by the way. Revelation chapter 4, when the, when the elders fall down before the Lord and cast their crowns before them, they said, Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and blessing and power. And he, and he says, And you have created us for your pleasure. You're good. I mean, that's why we were created. We were created to please God, and the way you please God is to glorify God. That's really the only reason any of us should still be sucking up oxygen on the earth, is to give God the glory. So the Israelites, in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 1, this is right after they've gotten out of Egypt. And just think for a brief moment how many things had to happen for them to get out of Egypt. There were ten plagues where God showed his power against the Egyptian gods in Egypt, and then when they got ready to leave Egypt, the Egyptians were so happy to see the Israelites go that they gave them tremendous wealth and said, here, here's all our money, here's our gold, here's our silver, please get out of the country. And, and they were ready to leave. And, and yet, they're out there for only a little while, and they get complaining and whining. And you know what their chief complaint was? The chief complaint was their diet. It was their food. You know, 
They had to go out every day and collect this white, frosty-looking stuff on the ground that the Bible says resembled coriander seed. And they didn't even know what it was, so they called it mana, which is Hebrew for what is it. So, and I don't know, I, a lot of us probably in the early days of our marriage with maybe uh, an, any, a less experienced spouse, maybe we've eaten a few meals of what is it. Okay, but they ate what is it every day, and that's where the word manna came from. So they ate manna or manna uh, every day, and then they got the, the other same things to eat every day, and it was kind of a boring diet, and sometimes if you've ever had a particularly restrictive diet, you get a little bored too, and we all have a tendency to complain about that. You know, if there's not a cheese enchilada once in a while, we got a problem. And so uh, they're complaining about that, but they're complaining to one another. And they're failing to bring to their burdens to God in prayer. And we see that God doesn't like it. So much so that his anger was kindled against them. He sent fire and it destroyed some of the outermost parts of the camp and their, its inhabitants. Now there was a certain man that was known for his constant complaining. And he inherited a large sum of money. And so what did he do? Well, he started complaining it wasn't as much as he thought it should be. And so he bought a farm with his money, and he asked his wife what she thought he should name the farm. And her response was, why don't you call it Belly Acres? Pretty shrewd wife, actually. Uh, there, there's a city limit sign in one particular city that says, welcome to Florence, home of 37,000 friendly people and a few soreheads. Uh, that's that. That would be funny if it wasn't so accurate uh, because we all have a tendency from time to time to be sore heads about different things. And we call the attitudes like a bunch of different names, griping, grumbling, whining, belly aching, and the King James says murmuring. Basically, it means an expression of unhappiness, dissatisfaction, or discontent. Now, surely none of you have this problem, so I'm just preaching to myself this morning. But uh, one pastor preached a sermon on the problem of negativity and the church pessimist. You know, this is the person that says, oh, we can't do that. We can't do that. We've never done it that way before. That's the Baptist version of that quote. He came up to the pastor afterwards and says, Preacher, you told it like it was today. And if the negative people had been here, you surely would have told them a thing or two. Uh, and yet he was the one that, that needed that sermon. But we gripe about all kinds of things. Employees gripe about their employers. Now, sometimes our employers do things we disagree with. Um, and, you know, I, I, IBM has recently done something that I don't personally agree with, but they were kind of forced by the government to do it. Uh, students gripe about their teachers and the homework and the workload. Uh, church members can gripe about the pastor. We all, from time to time, gripe about the government, some administrations more than others. But complaining is not new. In fact, it's the first complainer found in scriptures, a man by the name of Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, because Adam got caught with his hand in the fruit basket when he shouldn't, and when God called him up for it, he says, well, the woman that you gave to me is the one to blame for this. He complained about the wife. It's her fault. You know, that was the, the first recorded complaint that we have in Scripture. So let me clarify the vital difference between how it is that God will listen to our complaints because he loves us as a father and how God was angry with the Israelites for their complaining because there's a difference between pouring out our complaints before the Lord and just complaining to others. 
Now, when we pour out our complaints before the Lord, we're actually bringing those problems to God and we're seeking His glory in resolving the problem or changing our character through the problem. Now, let me be very clear on this point. God does not always eliminate our problems when we pray to Him about our problems. Sometimes, rather than eliminating the problem, He enables our perseverance. Let me say that again. Sometimes, rather than eliminating our problems, He enables our perseverance. He gives us the power and the grace to get through it. But when we're complaining, it's different than pouring out a complaint before God because we're usually complaining to each other or we're complaining to our spouse or we're complaining. In fact, here's a good rule for you. You might want to jot this down. It's not on a single slide, but this, this could just go in your book of famous Robert quotes, I guess, if there are such a thing. And that is, never complain to someone who's not, is neither a part of the problem or a part of the solution. If you're complaining to somebody and they either didn't cause the problem or they can't solve the problem, shut your mouth. Don't do it. Now, if you've got somebody that's a problem, go talk to them. Confront them in a Christian way. But don't complain to them because it doesn't do any good. And they've got to either be able to solve it or they've got to be the cause of it. But when we're complaining, we're not talking to the Lord. We're just whining and griping to others about the things that bother us. Now, put another way, bringing our problems to the Lord is something God wants us to do. He wants us to come to Him as loving Father. wants us to give Him our burdens. He wants to, us to seek His mercy and grace. And He wants us to wait on His answer. And He wants us to wait on His gracious provision. But complaining to others is a serious sin, so much so that Numbers 11.1, the Lord's anger blazed against Israel, the fire raged among them, and destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. I would call that a big deal, wouldn't you? So, let me give you three reasons why God hates complaining. It might even be three and a half, but I'm just I'm going to enumerate three, and one of them is kind of included so number one, and these, these are maybe worth jotting down if you're one of those people that takes notes so you can remember spiritual truth later. Number one, complaining denies God's supreme authority and power. Uh, a good example of this is in Pharaoh. Pharaoh in, in Exodus 5 and verse 2 says, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. See, Pharaoh had a problem. He thought he was God. He thought he was a God. And, and the, this all-powerful God of the universe is going to show his power. And the Israelites wind up leaving Egypt with great wealth. They grow through the Red Sea on dry land. And God destroys their enemies in, in the Red Sea. Now, after all this happens, they, they, they've now, think about this, God parted the waters, let them go through, not on wet ground, not on muddy ground, but on dry ground. There's three million people. And the three million people, if they're marching about a hundred people abreast, would have been a line about three and a half miles long worth of people. And it would have taken them almost two, two and a half days to cross uh, the Red Sea when God parted the water. So if you really think about it, this is a phenomenal thing. Not only that, God feeds them in the wilderness later, and it's equivalent to about 120 boxcars of food and 40 tank cars of water just to feed and water these people on a daily basis. By the way, Brother Steve, I never had thought about how much the Apostle Paul paid to 
take care of this for you. Man, that was a great insight. And I think it's amazing to think how much God had to provide on a daily basis. And he did it not just once, but he did it every day for 40 years. Well, except one day a week he didn't rain down manna, but he provided enough that they could get through the week. But their success in entering the promised land depended on God. So it's amazing that after all they've done, they, they have gotten away from Pharaoh's army. They were literally left Egypt with bags of gold and silver and jewelry and wealth. And they see Pharaoh's very powerful army destroyed in the Red Sea. And you would think after that that they just go around praising God for what he had done. And just a little bit later, they're complaining against Aaron. They're complaining against Moses. They're complaining about their diet. And they question God's ability to do what he said we would do. See, complaining is really just evidence that we're dissatisfied with what God has given us. I, I love the fact that every time somebody asks Dave Ramsey on the radio, you know, how, how is your day or how are you doing? He always says, better than I deserve. And really, that's, a, that's such an incredibly theological answer, uh, correct theological answer. Because think about this. What do we deserve? Well, I don't know about you, but I have sinned more than once in my life, and that makes me a sinner. And sinners aren't let into heaven unless they're forgiven. And what I deserved was an eternity in the lake of fire. So if I've got anything better than that, I should be grateful. This would be a great time to celebrate Thanksgiving because I know I'm not going to hell. I know I'm not going to go to the lake of fire. Because I know why. That when I was nine years old and sitting out in the amphitheater of Paladura Canyon listening to a sermon, I asked Jesus to come into my heart and be my Savior. And I had grown up believing in Jesus. My mother was my Sunday school teacher. She was excellent. But that night I thought, I don't know if I've ever actually, it's, you know, it's one thing to believe, it's another thing to receive. And, and that night I thought, I don't know if I've ever actually asked Jesus to be my Savior. And so I said, Lord, if I haven't ever done it before, I'm doing it right now. And I, somewhere about July 9th, 1971, I put a stake in the ground of knowing and that I know that I know that I know that I've asked Jesus Christ into my heart. That's why I know I'm going to heaven. Now, I've got a lot of flaws, and there'll probably be a lot of people in heaven surprised to see me when I get there. But I know that's, I know that's where I'm going. But when we complain, it's just saying, I'm not happy with the way things have turned out. I'm dissatisfied with how God is treating me. You shouldn't be. If, you're, if you've asked Jesus in your heart, you've got everything to be thankful for. See, one of the things I think is that complaining, and this is where I said we had three and a half. I didn't number this one. It should, should have probably been its own number. But complaining shows a lack of perspective. It shows a lack of perspective. One of the big problems that they were complaining about in Numbers 11, again, is their diet. They're complaining about their food. They've just been, they've left being slaves they now have bags of riches. God takes care of every need they have. He delivers for them from all their enemies. Not only that, they get to see a physical manifestation of the glory of God every day. By day, it's a cloud, uh, uh, the Shekinah cloud of glory. By night, it is a pillar of fire. But they, they, it's easy for them to believe in Yahweh because he was right there manifesting his presence before their eyes. What an amazing thing. That had to be. And, and yet, what do they do? They gripe about the food they're eating. 
their gripe about it. It's probably bland. Uh, bland food's not always a bad thing, folks. They've forgotten that they were just recently slaves. They've forgotten that they just recently became, for all practical intents, millionaires because of the money that they left Egypt with. And, and when we complain, we are losing perspective of how greatly God has blessed us. And it's easy for me to complain sometimes. You know, when you hurt all the time, you tend to complain all the time. And praise the Lord for the last three weeks, I've had less pain than I've had in the last six years. So I'm grateful for that. But when you hurt all the time, it is easy to complain and gripe and, you know, wonder if, you know. But then you have to stop every now and think, but you know what? No matter how bad I hurt, God has blessed me. Blessed me with a abs- probably the, the best wife I could have possibly ever had. And 40, you know, for 41 years, and, and children who are a delight and, and a joy to me. And it's really wrong of me to forget, and a, and a job. That, you know, I'm grateful for a job in this economy. That he gives me all that. It's really kind of wrong of me to gripe and murmur for these other things. Now, Exodus chapter 12 gives us a little more insight into this so you don't think I'm making up this story. It says, The children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. They borrowed of the Egyptians. Actually, borrowed is a King James word. Other translations say it better. They asked of the Egyptians. They weren't, they're not borrowing so they can pay it back. They're not coming back. So that's an unfortunate translation by the King James. So basically, they asked of the Egyptian jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptian so that they should be gave unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. Basically, the Egyptians gave generously just to get them out because of the ten, they didn't want any more of those plagues. That was nasty business. Especially that plague of the firstborn child. That was, that was tough. So, again, I said this sermon was for me. And so I'm just asking rhetorically, because I know none of you do this, but do you ever complain? Uh, what do you say about your spouse when maybe they're not listening? Or what kind of things do you say about your job? Or, or do you complain when a cashier or a sales clerk or a waiter or a waitress treats you uh, disrespectfully or leaves your iced tea glass too empty for too long. Do, do you share all the things that you think are wrong in the church uh, with others? And before we had our kind of mass exodus here, we had somebody that was doing that kind of behind our backs, never came to us directly, but that complaining is what led to a lot of people exiting. Because guess what? Complaining defiles other people. It defiles other people. Have you ever told somebody, well, the weather just ruined my day? Well, you know, I, I seem to read in Scripture that he reigns upon the just and the unjust. And why does he do it? He wants the earth to, to abound and take care of our needs. So, or do you not only complain about your spouse, maybe you complain to them. I've seen a lot of marriages ruined by a lack of gratefulness between the husband and wife. And all they do is complain about the things that are wrong. Let's face it, when you marry somebody and you spend a lot of years with them, you're going to find certain things that annoy you. Maybe their standards of of, uh, which way the toilet roll should unroll are going to be different or where you should squeeze the tube of toothpaste. I will tell you, if you want great advice later, next house you buy, make sure the husband and wife have separate sinks and separate uh, things of toothpaste, and then you don't have that argument anymore. It works wonders. Uh, you know, you, you maybe have different stand, uh, ways you want to use your time. 
or different standards of cleanliness. All these things that can just become irritants in you if you let that be your focus. But marriage is ruined by a lack of gratefulness. When we just expect things and then we get them, we're not grateful for them. And that destroys a marriage. Now, let me tell you the snake in the grass story. So a missionary is walking along with a, a native tribe and uh, suddenly one of the natives shot his gun very near the missionary, killed a huge snake that was in the path and the missionary never saw it and would have stepped on it. And so the missionary says, well, how come I didn't see that? And then a little bit later, they, they were walking further and the, mission, the native grabbed his arm and says, look, do you see the leopard? And the missionary couldn't see it until he finally saw it move. And he says, wait a minute, why couldn't I see it? We're walking on the same path. You see the snake. I only see the path. You point what looks to me like shadows on a stone and it becomes a leopard. Why couldn't I see them? And the native gave a rather interesting reply. He says, you have to get your bush eyes. You have to get your bush eyes. You see, if you stay in the jungle long enough, you develop what are called bush eyes. You recognize dangers that are there that others would not see. Well, what we need is some God eyes. We need, in the midst of our problems and difficulties and things happening to us that we don't like, we need to develop some God eyes that see God in the situation, God moving behind the scenes, God orchestrating either his provision in advance, his enabling grace, or God preparing to eliminate the difficulty for us. We need to get to where we can see God when no one else can, and we see God where others just see the leaves of the bushes. We need to be able to see God in all things so we can stop all our whining. Now, number two, or 2.5, depending on how you're counting, complaining disrupts Christian unity. Complaining disrupts Christian unity. See, the problem with complainers is we always complain to somebody. Now, when you're by yourself and you're just, you know, you're thinking about, oh, how terrible my life is. You're feeling sorry for yourself. Maybe you're, you're grumbling under your breath to yourself. But eventually, complainers want somebody else to hear their complaint. They just can't keep their trap shut. Uh, I, I still remember my mother's magnet in her car that says you are master of your unspoken words, but you are slave to those words that should have remained unsaid. Uh, so true. And so what happens when complainers complain is they spread discontentment. Discontentment's infectious. We start talking about what's wrong with our lives, and the other person starts thinking, hey, you know, I've got some stuff wrong with my life too, and then they want to start complaining, and you start having a pity party together. And you start uh, doing this, and, and discontentment long enough leads to people being bitter, and it can break families apart. It can destroy churches. It can cause big parts of the congregation to just up and leave in, in a herd because of the complaining. Uh, so there's a kind of an illustration of two different sets of eyes in Numbers 13, where 12, Moses sends 12 guys into the promised land to spy out the land. Now, when it comes back, the opinion of what they should do is greatly divided. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go conquer the land. And the other ten spies said, oh, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. So let me read you a little bit of this. Uh, Numbers 13, verse 30. And Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, surely let us go up and let us take possession of it, because surely we will be able to prevail over it. And if you read on, he said, because God's with us. God's on our side. He had God eyes. He just, we can prevail. You know why? Because God's with us. 
or we're with God, that's probably a better statement. Ten spies responded very differently. He says, and the men who went up with him said, we're not able to go up to the people because they're stronger than us. You know, nowhere, I'm sure they, they saw there was a lot of people, but Israel's no small bunch of folks at this point. They're three million people. They could have had a formidable army out of that three million people. Uh, but somehow or other, I guess some of the spies had gone into a local house among the Philistines and among the Canaanites and all the other people in the land and decided they'd arm wrestle them and they came back. That We lost every, every match to, to the Canaanites. We can't beat them. They're stronger than we are. I don't know how they came to that conclusion. And, and it says, and they presented the report of the land that they explored to the Israelites saying, the, the land that we went through to explore is a land that eats its inhabitants. Now, by the way, they also said it's a land of milk and honey. It's got all these wonderful things. It would be a great place to be. But they said the land eats its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in the midst are men of great size. I guess the men of great size hadn't been eaten yet. There we saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak from the Nephilim. Of course, these were physical giants. Some of these guys were very, very tall. And you know that uh, if you were here when I preached a sermon on the giants of the land, I actually showed you some archaeological evidence for the fact that uh, uh, in South America there were people even just a few hundred years ago that were eight to nine feet tall. You don't see that anymore. Now we have little evidences of it every now and then, and they, they're kind of the outliers, but you know, people used to be quite tall and the Nephilim are like that. And he says, we are like grasshoppers in their own sight. So were we in their eyes. I, I find this the most amazing comment of all. In, uh, in Taiwan, in the city of Taichung, there is a 60-foot tall statue of Buddha. And so one day while I was there in 1982, I was curious about what was inside the statue, and so I walked up inside the statue, and it's four or five floors high, probably five floors high, and at each stage there were different representations of Buddha's life, or there were tables that Buddhists could leave little offerings on, but your pastor here has the distinction of having looked out through the nostrils of Buddha. I have looked out through his eyes, I've looked out through his nostrils, you know, and, and uh, I guess the Israelites must have climbed up inside the eyeballs of the Nephilim and said, oh, look at those Israelites, they're like little grasshoppers. I don't know why they thought that, but they assume that they looked tiny and puny compared to, to them. Uh, you know, it's very interesting to me that when David managed to hit Goliath in, in the forehead with a rock, which, by the way, did not kill him, he then took Goliath's sword and cut Goliath's head off, and that's what actually did Goliath in. That any opinion that the Philistines had of Israel or Judah changed at that very moment because the Philistines fled in front of them. Because if a little shepherd boy could whoop their tallest soldier, they needed to get out of Dodge. So we don't know what's in somebody else's mind or eyes, but you know what you have is two spies that really have God eyes and ten spies that have problem eyes. And that's all they can see was the objection. And these ten negative spies basically are saying, we can't do what God has told us to do. It's too hard for us and the people are too big. Um, do you ever exaggerate your problems? 
I, again, this is just for me, so I'll have to speak in the first person here. I exaggerate my problems from time to time. Every now and then I'll get into difficulty and I will say, this is the worst problem we have. But after 41 years, Judy can bring up a litany of other problems that were much worse than this one and, and totally uh, dispute the fact successfully that this is not the worst problem we've ever faced. And God was adequate for all the other problems. And she, she was there to, to, to remind me of that. So we exaggerate a problem. Somebody shares an illness and, 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 or you, somebody else shares a problem. The other day, I, you know, when, when Chris sent me the note about the, the problem they're facing with the insurance and how they max out their out-of-pocket maximum in the first month of every year with Jubilee's treatment for autism, all of a sudden my problems seemed a lot smaller. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have financial challenges, but mine are certainly smaller than that. Uh, and then the, ten, the problem with these ten negative spies is they poisoned the attitudes of everybody else in Israel. Suddenly, nobody wanted to go into the promised land. They're all freaked out except for Joshua and Caleb. And when they started complaining, they, they all got, we can't fever. We can't do it. We can't go. We can't do it. We've never done this before. How can we do it now? And, and so... Let me remind you what happened to an entire generation of belly acres. They got to wander in the desert for 40 years and God killed off that entire older generation of people under the age of, I think it was 20, 20, 21. He killed off that entire generation of people except for Joshua and Caleb and, and they wondered until God built up a new nation after that population decline, and then he takes them into the promised land. Belichick doesn't do any good. All it does is keep you from getting to see God's promises. Um, a scary truth of complaining is that it's just so contagious and it spreads like wildfire. It's like when one dog in the neighborhood starts barking, barking, barking. Soon all the dogs are barking. Uh, our air conditioner went out recently, and I'm thankful I have a son-in-law who could come you know, install a new system, and that was not a great time of year to have that financial challenge, but God provided the funds just three or four days before he came. And, um, but for a little while, it was fortunate that Donald had been able to patch our system together for about two of the last hot months that we had before uh, it finally just went put forever and uh, he came to install a new system and the weather had just turned pleasantly cool but to cool the house downstairs I, I thought running the upstairs air and putting some fans to blow things down would help it didn't but we opened our our triple pane windows that normally stay shut all the time I opened one on the north side of the house one on the south side of the house and I went down to Target about an hour before they closed, found one of the three box fans they had left. I set the box fan in the window, plugged it in to suck more of that air from the outside into our bedroom and cool down things. Everybody else lives upstairs where the air conditioner was working. And uh, so I sat down to enjoy a few quiet moments to myself before I went to bed. And some neighbor's dog, that I think the neighbor's probably block, block and a half away, from the sound of it, they got a really big dog. And, of course, we have two big dogs, uh, which is too, too many, by the way. But we've got two big dogs. Well, they had a big dog, at least as big as our, 
our Labrador Retriever is, and this dog was nonstop barking for two hours. And I'm one of those people, I just, you know, I don't let our dogs bark. If they bark, I call them out for it. I've had a bark collar before, so they get a little warning buzz, and if they ignore that and they bark three or four times in a row, they get a little gentle reminder that they don't need to be barking incessantly. So for the most part, our dogs are quiet, although our Labrador still thinks that a squirrel coming across our fence is a mortal threat to his existence, and he will bark at that. And if they get in the wrong side of our yard, and our other neighbors have uh, their dogs and their little dogs out in the backyard, and by the way, the Thornton's dogs could kill my dogs because they could get lodged in my dog's throats, and then they wouldn't be able to breathe. And, uh, but anyway, when they're, one day my dogs got in the wrong half of the yard, and Thornton's dogs are out running in the backyard, and, and there was this constant, just sounded like a dog fight between the, the pickets, you know. And I'm sure if, if, if the doors had been opened, they would have all made friends with each other. But I went out there and put the dogs back in the appropriate side of the yard and let them know they're not supposed to be over there. We had to put a fence in our backyard, by the way, because we used to have a border collie that would play tug-of-war with the copper pipe that uh, brought Freon to our air conditioner unit. And we, we still have a hole in the ozone layer over our house because of that. But, you know... What happens is when one dog starts barking, they all start barking. It's kind of, I don't know if you ever remember seeing the 101 Dalmatians. They had the bark chain that they passed news across, you know, the town by, by barking. Well, complaining is a lot like that. And all complaining accomplishes is that it amplifies people's frustration, it spreads discontentment, and it promotes discord. That's all that complaining actually does. It doesn't make the situation any better. Uh, so let me add a little, this, again, this precautionary balance. I want to make sure that you don't misunderstand me. This is the second time I've tried to give you this balance if you missed it the first time. But there's a difference between complaining to others and sharing our burdens with fellow Christians so that they can pray about that with us. I, I love it when people come and say, you know, Pastor, I need some prayer about this, and they share their situation like Chris and Desiree properly did to let us know of this challenge because it's, a, it's such a huge burden, and they need a lot of people praying for them that they'll find a financial solution so that their autistic child can still get the help that she needs. And we need to be praying that God will give Chris and Desiree wisdom and give them favor with their employer and that something will happen that will carry them through. And, and the Bible actually says this in Galatians 6 too. Carry the burdens of one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, one of the ways we fulfill the law of Christ is we listen to people's burdens. If, if it's something that makes them cry, you cry with them. And you try to, to share their burdens and you try to help with those burdens. Where it's right for us to do that, we are to aid one another. We are to pray one another. So it's okay for us to share things with people if it's so that we can all together bring those requests before the Lord so that he can get glorified when he answers our petitions. And, you know, we can do another whole sermon on how God answers our petitions because he has a lot of options available to him and he's sovereign and he can do that. But the point is, it doesn't help us to complain, but it is right for us not to complain so that other people can say, oh, you poor baby. But so somebody else can say, brother, let's stop right now and pray. And by the way, let me give you a piece of advice. I am a busy man, and I know that if somebody shares a prayer request with me, if I say, I'll pray for you, 
By the time I get home, I've forgotten my commitment to pray for them. So what I just do right then is, well, let's do it right now. Let's pray right now. Because if I pray right now, at least I've done it one time. And if it's something that really grabs at my heart, like Chris and Desiree's situation, I will pray again and again and again about that thing. Um, and I've recently had another couple that I just I wake up in the middle of the night and I pray for them because I know they have challenges. Now, I told you earlier that that complaining was a sin, and I, I made that thing. And I don't want you to think I was being dogmatic and just you know telling you to believe this because I said it. But let's read this scripture in Philippians two. This is a command in scripture. You understand that when the Bible commands us to do something. For us not to do it is a what? A sin. Okay, so look at this. Do all things with what? Without grumbling and disputing. So if we grumble, that's another word for complain, whine, murmur, same thing, bellyache. Then we're violating this command in Scripture. Do all things without grumbling and disputing in order that you may become blameless and innocent Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine as stars in the world. Conversely, we could say that when we complain, we are not not without fault and we do not appear innocent and blameless in the midst of a crooked and perverted world. Instead, we become part of the crooked and perverted world because we're denying the existence of God. And here's the problem. What happens to our testimony when we whine and complain. Is there anybody that wants our faith if all they hear us do is gripe? I can't see why anybody would be attracted to Jesus Christ if all I did was complain. And that's our problem. We have an impact on other people. And we're called to be everything that God wants us to be as His children. And so how you live life has a dramatic impact on others, and your witness reveals the truth of God's ability to sustain you and care for others. I think one of the things that uh, the world takes notice of is when God takes care of his children, and they see that. They see that. Uh, I remember my mother, after many years, you know, when I first surrendered to preach, that was, she couldn't understand that. It didn't make sense to her. She remembered that my brother went through something like that when he was about 16, and and she, you know, Fred apparently got over it for a while. And my, my brother now is a very godly man and been a leader in Bible study fellowship for many years. And I'm, I'm grateful for the man he's become. But there was a period of his life when he wasn't like that. Um, he wasn't an evil person, wasn't a bad person. He was a, quote, good person. But he didn't have a great godly impact on people like he has now. And so I'm very thankful for what God's done in, in Fred's life. But she thought I would get over it kind of like he did. Uh, and yet God just wouldn't let me ignore the call to preach. It was not what I had planned for my life. It had never been in my plans for my life, but it was something God wanted me to do, and he wouldn't let go of me. I, I fought him for two years. I'm not proud to say that, but it took me two years to answer the call that God gave me. But, um, you know, the problem is, is that a Christian who always grumbling and complaining is actually harmful to the cause of Christ. Nobody wants to hear us. We, and, and not only that, I don't like being around people who are grumbling and complaining all the time. Now, when my children have a problem, I listen because they're my children and I love them and I want to help 
them know that their daddy listens to them and he cares for them. But just being around people who do nothing but whine and grumble and complain because certain things didn't happen a certain way, that's not my forte. So kind of an illustration of impact in that video we started with kind of made me think of this. But a young girl surprised her mother with a very beautiful and unexpected gift that she'd purchased with her own allowance. And the little girl said, Mom, this is for you because you work so hard and nobody seems to appreciate it around here. And her mother was trying to be modest and said, Well, your father works hard too. And the girl had an interesting response. I know, but he doesn't complain about it. And so I guess the mother probably said some things once in a while about, Oh, nobody appreciates me. And the girl thought, Oh, well, I need to do that. Uh, interesting thing. What happens when life hits us with a tough problem and we just fall apart? And, and what happens is the world looks at us and say, well, where is your God when you need him? See, when we gripe and complain and we express our hopelessness that anything will ever get better, the world sees that and they, they say, well, where is your God? You talk about God, you act like you live for him, but where is he when you need him? And so they don't see our faith as real. So let's go down this path for a minute. Remember when Paul and Silas were in jail? Uh, what if instead of singing, you remember what happened? They were singing praises and God sent an earthquake and their bonds dropped off of them. And then they led the Philippian jailer to, and his family to the Lord. But let's imagine a different scenario. Let's imagine it's midnight and Paul and Silas are grumbling about their circumstances. They're, they're prisoners. Nobody seems to care. Everybody's forgotten about them. The, the things they put, are, the shackles that they have around their wrist and ankles are hurting them. The food is terrible. There's rats inside the cell. And there's, you know, these Roman guards that are outside are our most unfriendly, uncrueling, unkind group of military people that have ever lived. And probably every bit of that I just said was true. But, so they could have maybe in our eyes been justified about complaining their circumstances and instead they're singing praises to God. But let's imagine that they're grumbling and complaining and maybe, maybe you overhear a conversation. Maybe the flipping jailer would pass by the door and Silas says to Paul, Paul, you big shot dummy, you just had to show off and cast the demon out of that girl and now look at the mess you got us in. Why couldn't you just let that demon possessed girl alone? Because that's, by the way, why they were in prison in this circumstance. And if that dialogue had been going on, the jailer might have, probably would not have asked, what must I do to be saved? Instead, uh, he might have been saying, what do I have to do to avoid this Christianity thing? I wonder sometimes how many people avoid Christianity because they hear us whining. And uh, that's what we need to be careful of. So our most important tool is our testimony. You know... Oh, there's a whole lot of different ways for winning people to the Lord. You know, and of course, uh, I remember they taught us in church early on about the Roman road. You know, you, uh, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 5.8, but God showed his love toward us and while we are yet sinners, uh, Christ died for us. You know, and that's, that's the next thing. And then, you know... Uh, Romans 10, 19, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 6, 23, uh, that the, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There's, there's all these wonderful Bible verses you can lead people to the Lord. But you know what? If you can't remember the Romans road and you can't remember to quote John three sixteen because your, your brain is muddled a bit, here's the secret. Share with people what Jesus has done for you. That's it. Just share with Jesus what Jesus has done for you. 
And that's the most powerful thing you have to bring other people to Jesus Christ. But when we grumble, we really don't have a reason for doing so. It's like the guy that returned the chainsaw to the store. He went in, he bought a new chainsaw, and it was advertised to be able to cut five trees in an hour's time. And so he came back the next day fussing and complaining, and, and the guy said, what's wrong? He says, well, it took me all day to cut down one tree. And so the salesman looks down, he pulls a little cord, the engine starts right up, and the guy says, what's that noise? What's that noise? He'd been out there trying to saw a tree without ever turning the power on. He thought he'd just rub that chain against the tree enough that it, it would come down. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with the saw. The problem is the guy didn't understand how it worked. And if we have the power of God, without the power of God, it all takes us too long to accomplish our task. So let me read you that A.W. Tozer quote one time again. Among those sins most exquisitely fitted to injure the soul and destroy the testimony, few can equal the sin of complaining. Very true. So let's stop a minute before we close. How have you been blessed in your life? I want us to think about that. And I'm hoping maybe after everybody gets their food and sits down, a few of you can can stand up and just share one thing for which you're thankful. You know, the, uh, the pilgrims, uh, the pilgrims built seven, they, they constructed seven times more graves than they did huts when the, when the first settlers arrived to uh, America. And they barely made it through the winter. And they actually had to ration the food to giving them five kernels of corn per day. And so at that first Thanksgiving, they, because of the Indians and the help the Lord sent them, they had an abundance of food. They put five kernels of corn in each person's plate, and, and it was a reminder of what they had to be thankful for. So we, we sometimes at Thanksgiving, we'll put five kernels of corn by everybody's plate and say, share five things for which you're thankful. Now our family's getting big enough that if you do that, all the food will get cold, but maybe you can, we can all share one thing uh, while we're eating. Because the truth is, the more we think about what we're thankful for, the less we complain. And the less time we spend dishonoring the Lord. Because complaining is no little deal to God. It's a big deal to Him. Uh, you know, if we see someone who's drunk or somebody's got a filthy mouth, uh, we ask them to tone down their conversation. You know, I heard somebody the other day using probably one of the most offensive curse words, and I said, you know, there's some women in the audience. Would you mind, at least for this presentation, altering your vocabulary in respect of them? And that, that stopped it. That, that stopped it. Uh, no excuse for that kind of vocabulary in, in any kind of meeting, in my opinion. But we tend to blow things off as a small deal. But it's funny how we'll, we'll condemn bad speech in somebody else, and yet we don't realize that we're just as guilty at destroying our testimony and of making Christ unattractive to people when we murmur and complain and gripe and whine. So how is your perception? It's kind of like the two boys walking along, and one boy was eating some grapes, and, and he said, aren't these sweet? And the other guy said, yeah, I guess so, but they're full of seeds. Then later they're walking through a garden, and the first boy says, look at these beautiful red roses. And the other commented, well, they're full of thorns. And, and many believers are kind of like that second boy, that we, we see the world through dark, negative, complaining glasses rather than being grateful for what they were. And so like the children of Israel, we grumble and complain when we ought to be praising the Lord for his position. 
So my mother had some great advice when I was growing up, and she almost always said it the same way, but, you know, she probably rephrased it a few different ways, but I heard this advice often. She said, if you don't have something nice to say, then don't say it. That, that was just the way mom said it. If you don't have something nice to say, then don't say it. And my mother was a great example of when life gave her problems that would have made other people bitter, she got better. Uh, and that's a much more wonderful example. You know, one of the things that bothers me uh, is if you're in a big group and you go out to a restaurant and some people spend a good portion of the meal complaining about their food or the waiter or the service or this or that, and, and uh, especially if I'm hosting the event and that happens, it just... It, it's like uh, West Texas cotton field dirt between my back molars. just irritates me. Uh, you know, my mother, we didn't complain at dinner. Even if we didn't like something, we didn't complain about it. And I don't think I've ever heard my brother or sister utter a complaint at a meal. They're always gracious. Now, if we got a problem with the server, we might tell the server, could you come by a little more often because I'm really thirsty? Or could you take this steak back to the kitchen because it's brown in the middle and it should still be saying moo when it gets to my plate. Just please shoot it in one leg and let it limp to my plate this next time. Something like that. So, you know, here's an idea. Instead of complaining about the situations or the circumstances, be thankful for the people you're with. Even if the food's bad, you can be thankful for the people, right? You can be thankful that people even want to eat with you, even want to sit with you. Uh, rather than complain because your iced tea glass is empty for an extra five minutes. Uh, I'm not going to complain about that anymore, though. Okay, so the next time you feel like complaining, here's three things to remember. Complaining denies God's supreme authority and power. Complaining disrupts Christian unity. And complaining discredits our Christian testimony. Or if you just want to do a short summary on the sermon... Stop complaining. Stop complaining. It's not doing any good. Maybe, maybe God will help us remember that advice next time we get ready to open our mouths. So I want to close by reading some great wisdom from an old song. Uh, and uh, this was written in 1897 by Johnson Kurtman, Jr. And it's a song called Count Your Blessing. Listen to the words. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And then there's a refrain. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Or an alternate last line is, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. I kind of like that one too. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy? You're called to bear. Count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly, and you will keep singing as the days go by. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy your award in heaven nor your home on high. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings, angels will attend, help and comfort give you, and your journey's end. You know, I, I was just, just then, I didn't think about it earlier, but this, this verse here, verse 2, that last line says, Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will keep singing as the day goes by. Jeannie and I have a close friend, 
and for at least the last, I'm going to say 30 years, her husband, who once was a fellow seminary student of mine, has treated her like an absolute jerk would treat his wife. Uh, he hasn't slept in the same room with her. He's often lived in a different house with her. He sells the house she's living in so she doesn't have a place to live. And she's just trying to be a faithful wife in spite of that. And what, to my mind, in the 41 years I've been pastoring is the most impossible marriage I've ever seen. And you know what she does? She just, she'll talk about the problem because we ask her what's going on. And then she'll say, puts this big, she has a super wide smile. She puts this big wide smile on her face. She says, Praise the Lord anyway. And then she gets out her guitar and she sings songs. And she brightens the lives of others in spite of her personal circumstances. And, and i got to tell you, I have profound respect for this woman. Because she's able to be joyful in the Lord when anybody else would have given up a long time ago. She somehow or other is able to count her blessings even when her problems seem so numerous. You know, the best remedy there is for complaining is just to praise the Lord. And the most important time to praise the Lord is when you don't feel like praising the Lord. That's when it's really essential, and there's more on that for next week. So Brother Steve's going to come lead us in a closing song, and in interest of what we just heard, let's sing.